Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Today on The Indispensables, Bruce is joined by best-selling author Brian Christian. They will discuss the alignment problem and the use of AI in today's industry. Welcome to The Indispensables. Today, my guest is Brian Christian. Uh, Brian is a friend of ours and is also a best-selling author of three books. Uh, His most recent book is The Alignment Problem, Machine Learning and Human Values, uh, and that was named as a Los Angeles Times finalist for Best Science and Technology Book of the Year. Um, he's a best-selling author. He's a super interesting guy, um, and, and he uh, also is a, is a great uh, speaker and seminar leader um, and just a great thinker. You're going to learn a lot from him. Brian Christian, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you for having me. Um, so so tell us, how does somebody uh, – I mean, I, I, I know that you – are uh, a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley, and um, you, you get around, right? Um, but how does somebody get to where you are? How do you? Because uh, my understanding is uh, you uh, you you studied literature, and now you're an expert on artificial intelligence. So how, how did that happen? Yeah, I've had a very, I would say, idiosyncratic academic journey. Uh, I. Started off, depending on where you want to start the uh, story, I went to one of the top STEM high schools in the country, which is called High Technology High School in Lincroft, New Jersey. And from a very early age, I assumed I would end up as a roboticist or a cognitive scientist or something like that. However, all of my creative projects in high school were the things that I found myself spending the most energy on. And I would do very creative, you know, book proposal or excuse me, book reports. I did a book report on Moby Dick as a rap opera and, you know, various various things like that. Moby Um, Dick as a rap opera. So is that your idea or was Moby Dick a rap opera and then you wrote about it? No, it was Moby Dick, the, the Herman Melville novel, but to do the book report on it as a rap opera. Rather oh, than the, a, the book a, report was a rap opera. Yes. Wow. Okay. And and this was at your science, technology, engineering, yeah. and math high school. Okay. Yeah. So they so were I, like, <laughs> just just to illustrate the point that I had this creative side and I put all of this energy into those projects. But at that time, I still considered myself to be a scientist in training, and that carried through to when I went to undergrad uh, at Brown University. And there I was a computer science and philosophy double major. And for me, those two disciplines spoke to each other in a really interesting way. And I, at, at the time, I think it would raise eyebrows among my extended family, that particular combination. Uh, computer, but I think computer science and philosophy. And, and of course, all of your books are about the human and social dimensions of computer science, right? That's right. And I think that in many ways, we are living in a unique kind of golden era for the ability of computer science to start to address some of these 
the most longstanding uh, of philosophical questions. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to think? Uh, what is it, you know, wh what is it that minds do? Uh, we are now at a really I th incredible and fascinating point. And I think these two disciplines have long been on a collision course and they're now, uh, they're now really throwing sparks in it for me, a riveting way. Um, and so from undergrad, I went, uh, slowly started to build this conviction that perhaps rather than a scientist who had this creative passion, maybe I was a writer with a scientific passion or, you know, maybe the, the vocation and the obsession, you know, went, went the other direction. And so I went and did a master of fine arts degree in creative writing. Uh, and this is one of those great cases where you can connect the dots looking backwards and everything feels inevitable that I would end up as this nonfiction writer who is probing the intersection of computer science and philosophy for a general audience. Um, I, I, don't, I can't say that at the time I had anywhere near uh, a master plan, but the pieces fell into place. And I think it's been uh, pretty amazing the way that I've been able to leverage all of the aspects of this very kind of diverse and idiosyncratic academic background. Yeah, it's so interesting. So which came first, the computer science or the philosophy? It turns out that like the uh, age old question, um, it's, it's, it's not as, it's not clear cut. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those two uh, obsessions really go all the way back for me. Yeah. So do you know, by the way, the, the age old question, do you, do you, since you're a philosopher and, and an expert on artificial intelligence, are we going to ever solve that question? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> um, great question. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are working on artificial life and, uh, you know, computational perspectives on evolution. So if there's an answer, uh, you know, we might, we might find something from that community. We might find something about it. So, but, 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 uh, but uh, to just to take the uh, the silly uh, metaphor one step further. So, is which is more interesting, the philosophy of computer science or using computers to answer questions about philosophy? I think you're right to point out that it goes in both directions. From my perspective, there, the biggest stakes is the eternal philosophical questions about what it means to be alive, what it means to be human, what it means to think, to be conscious. That's the, that's the big pay dirt. I mean, that's the big mystery of the universe as far as I'm concerned. And what I think is pretty incredible is that we are living in a totally unique time relative to the last you know 2,500 years of Western philosophy to actually uh, develop empirical approaches to some of these questions. So to give you one example, there is this eternal question in philosophy of mind, goes back to the mid 20th century, about uh, is language itself enough to learn everything you would need to know about the universe? Or do you need embodied sensory experience? Do you need to be there, experiencing it with your own eyes, etc.? cetera? Um, or is it enough to just read books and, and get all of your knowledge that way? And that is a question that's been debated for generations, but we're now living in the age of what are called large language models, which things like GPT-3 from OpenAI, if, if your listeners are familiar, these incredibly powerful systems that are trained on 
basically the entire internet and you know all the books that have ever been written and they have this incredible power they're sort of like autocomplete on steroids uh you can tell okay. them to write you a an, an five paragraph essay about uh herman melville you could do moby dick as a rap opera and it will do a, a passable job i mean it's really astonishing but large language models give us an actual playground on which to test these theories about how much knowledge is possible just by reading books. So all of these things that were debated as thought experiments in the 60s and 70s, all the way through my own undergrad in the 2000s, well, we now have the actual artifact in front of us and we can just probe it and say, well, what can it do? What can't it do? Uh, and is that, that like, in other words, it knows everything? It's read everything. And so that's the question is, um, does the system develop what you might consider understanding, knowledge? Are there gaps in that knowledge as a function of, you know, being this weird disembodied entity that's read books but doesn't have a body, doesn't have a lifespan? Um, and so if you kind of probe the capabilities of these systems, you can start to find these weird corner cases where, you know, they, they don't behave the way that you would expect. And so that starts to tell us something about, you know, the embodied nature of, of being human. Yeah. So, okay. And, and not for nothing, your first book was The Most Human Human, right? Which was, by the way, a Wall Street Journal bestseller, a New York Times editor's choice, a New Yorker favorite book of the year, but The Most Human Human. Tell me The Most Human Human isn't a computer. <laughs> well, that title refers specifically to one of the oldest ideas in AI, which is called the Turing test. Um, and Alan Turing in 1950 was asking this question of, you know, can machines someday think? Can they be said to think? And his approach to that was to propose a, a practical contest where you've got a panel of judges. They're having these chat conversations, text message conversations, uh, half of them with computer programs pretending to be people and the other half with real people. Um, and Turing predicted that at some point in the 21st century, we'd arrive at a place in time where the average person couldn't tell the difference, whether they were talking to a you know, human stranger or a computer program pretending to be a human stranger. Um, and I ended up participating in one of these competitions in the late 2000s as what is called the human confederate. So I was one of the, the real people, the random strangers sequestered in a room down the hall, <laughs> doing my best to have this kind of high pressure small talk with these scientists and persuade them that I was not a computer program, which is a very strange and surreal position to be in. Right. And each judge would assign at the end of their conversation a kind of confidence score of how, how confident they were that they were talking to a person rather than a computer. And at the end of the competition, the computer program that got the highest score would win this prize called the Most Human Computer Award. But there was also a prize, and I found this bizarre and intriguing, there was also a prize to the real person who <laughs> got the highest score. And this was the Most Human Human Award. Wow. Um, and so that was a very, for me, provocative and intriguing concept that you could be, in some sense, more human than another person through the medium of conversation. And so that ends up being the subject of the first book. Yeah, or or, or most, more persuasively human anyway, right? Exactly, right. 
Exactly. Um, so, 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 um, okay. So back to the uniquely well-read computer um, that, that has read, the computer that, that has read everything. Um, so does that computer, does it extract, is it able to extrapolate? Yeah, you can think of it. I, I think the best analogy is autocomplete on steroids, yeah, as I mentioned. So we're all familiar with, you know, on our phones, et cetera, these systems that will pop up what they think is likely to be the next word in whatever message that we're typing. And the versions of it that we have on our phones are sort of rinky-dink compared to what we're seeing now at these biggest academic labs, places like OpenAI and DeepMind, Google Brain, et cetera. And we're now at a point where they can essentially auto-complete entire paragraphs, entire essays. Um, you could say to them, you know, the, the following is my interview transcript with author Brian Christian on the subject of AI, colon, enter, and it would spit out this thing that looks like a transcript where someone is asking someone questions, they're talking about a book, blah, blah, blah. And you I mean without 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 having an actual transcript? Correct. Correct. Wow. It can quote unquote autocomplete the entire document, if you like. Wow. I mean it's really this is really breathtaking, I think. And we're seeing this just in the last couple of years. It is. So so that to me, that sounds like at least the verisimilitude of extrapolation. Yes. Yes. And we could get into more, you know, a philosophical conversation about, you know, where does the verisimilitude begin and end. Um, but I think at a practical level, it's uh, we can just ask the question of what can these systems do and what can't they do? Yeah. So can it be wise? Does it have wisdom? Well, it has the wisdom of the culture in, in, in which it's raised, basically. It doesn't have the wisdom of firsthand experience. And so that's very interesting. Um, it has the wisdom that you would find on Google. So if you ask Google, what's dating advice or how do I age gracefully or how do I start my startup? Um, you'll find that it knows whatever other people have already said, but it can't go beyond that because it doesn't have any actual life experience. And, and I mean, does it have values? It has values to the degree that Again, it assimilates the values of the culture. So this is this is something that um, I talk about in the alignment problem. This is a, a huge issue right now with machine learning systems, which are like these language models, trained by examples, trained by data. So to switch tack a little bit from language models to image models, there is a system that came out in the last month or so from OpenAI called DALI2. And it is this remarkable system that can produce photorealistic images from any text description that you write. You could say, um, you know, a, a mouse detective sitting on a park bench reading a novel and boom, it would show you an image that matches that description that it just sort of conjured out of thin air. I mean, it's really, that's, that's astounding. stunning. So how does it do that? <laughs> Well, it's trained on examples from the internet. So again, it's the same methodology where we scrape hundreds of thousands of images along with their captions, and it slowly learns the relationship between the words in the caption and what's in the image. 
um, and it can work backwards. So you can provide it with an image and it will give you what it thinks a caption might be, but you can also give it a caption and it'll provide you what it thinks is a reasonable image for that. Um, but to your question about values, I think this is a critical question because with this particular system, and this is true broadly throughout the industry, if you say, show me pictures of nurses, they're going to be overwhelmingly female. If you say, show me pictures of CEOs, they're going to be overwhelmingly Western, white men wearing suits, um, and et cetera, et cetera. There are these stereotypes. Um, and so you can think of that as, you know, quote unquote values. Um, it, it has created, uh, it has embodied, so to speak, these stereotypes, these biases that exist in the culture. Um, and because, because I'm guessing it's because, but I'm guessing it's because it replicates what is already in the data. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so it becomes kind of a passive um, regurgitator, if you like, of these kind of existing biases that are, you know, just throughout media in general. So is it possible that a computer could uh, be smart enough or extrapolate enough or be wise enough or have sufficient uh, values uh, that it would say, golly, um, maybe uh, there should be more women CEOs. <laughs> I mean, this is a really active area of research. I would say like this question of AI bias, AI fairness has been one of the fastest growing areas within the field of AI in the last five years. And so you can't go to an AI conference today without seeing countless keynotes on this exact topic. So it is very much at the bleeding edge. People are writing PhD theses on the subject as we speak. I think it's still largely an open problem. Um, we do have systems, for example, that can calibrate their own level of uncertainty. So a system could say, oh, I don't have a lot of data about this question that you're asking me. So instead of just pulling some answer off the top of my head, I'm going to tell you that I don't know. Or I'm going to tell you you should defer to some someone else or a human expert. I think that's a big part of it, um, a big part of making AI safe and robust. But yeah, to your question about can we make these systems um, have that level of meta awareness, if you will, that's, that their own distribution is unfair or skewed or biased in some way, this is very much an open problem. For now, it's incumbent on the people who build and audit these systems to try and mitigate those harms. And then would computer scientists be trying to create algorithms to live by? Uh, I, should, I, should, I, I should explain to the listeners that um, uh, Brian's second book is called Algorithms to Live By, which he wrote with Tom Griffiths, which is, by the way, a, a number one Audible bestseller and an Amazon Best Science Book of the Year and an MIT Technology Review Best Book of the Year. I mean, you really should read the book or uh, apparently the audible is so good. You should listen to it. Uh, but, but is explain, uh, explain what algorithms to live by is about. If, if you would be so kind. Yeah. So algorithms to live by, um, as you mentioned, is my second book and it's a collaborator with my, it's a collaboration rather with my longtime, uh, friend and colleague, Tom Griffiths, who is a computational cognitive scientist and, he and I have been talking about and, and thinking about 
computational models of the mind for for decades, and this is really the, the backbone of Tom's research. And we, to make the long story short, ended up deciding to write this book together about our shared obsession with the the wisdom that you can gain from taking a computational lens to everyday problems of human life, whether it's you know I'm on the real estate market. How long, you know, how many options should I consider before I commit to something? Whether it's the question of, you know, I'm, I'm going out to dinner. Do I go to my favorite restaurant or do I try something new? We think of these as innately, idiosyncratically, uniquely human problems. And the message of the book is, in so many words, they're not. Actually, they correspond to some of the most fundamental problems in computer science. Buying a house is like what is called an optimal stopping problem, where you have a succession of options and you have to pick the place to just commit and go all in, never knowing if there was something else better that was out there that you never knew about. Uh, deciding where to go out to eat is what's called an explore-exploit problem, where you have to make a trade-off between doing the stuff that you know and love and trying something that might be better and might be worse. Um, these are some of the core things that people at places like Google, et cetera, are thinking about. And part of what we wanted to do in the book was to say, you know, any, any programmer, any computer scientist's first draft version of a problem, you know, a solution to a problem like that is to ask themselves what they would do in that situation. That's often the first, uh, the first algorithm, first program that any computer scientist comes up with is just, okay, how would I solve this? But we have 50, 60, 70 years of hard data on which solutions are superior to others, which solutions are optimal in which circumstances. And the, what we wanted to do with that book was close the feedback loop, so to speak. Can we take some of the things that have been learned by studying the formal versions of these problems and actually fold that back into human intuition so that we can make, be better decision makers in our own human lives. Um, and that was really the, the exploration of that book. And it, it, was a real, it was a real pleasure to be able to work together on that. So, so that's a really cool um, uh, way to explain the intersection of human and social dimensions uh, with computer science. So the optimal stopping problem uh, is is there is there a formula for the optimal stopping problem? There are many formulas depending on exactly how you formulate the problem. So this is one of the things that's always uh, always a consideration in math is you know what what exactly are your assumptions? The most famous version of the optimal stopping problem is called the secretary problem, and this comes from a very you know frankly sexist 1950s kind of you know model where the implicitly male boss is hiring an implicitly female secretary, and uh, X number of candidates have lined up outside of your door, and you're interviewing them one at a time. And for some peculiar reason, after each interview, you need to make a very specific decision to hire that person and send everyone else home, or to dismiss them, in which case you forfeit the ability to bring them back and change your mind. And so this gives you a very particular kind of anxiety of you want the very best candidate in the pool, but how are you going to know the best candidate when you see them? 
Um, and you don't want to commit too early. You don't want to hold out too late for some perfect candidate that doesn't exist and then end up empty-handed. And so if you have this very particular um, objective, which is to maximize the probability that you get the very best candidate in the pool, and we can talk later about whether that appropriately captures you know, what, what you would want to do in that situation, but if all you care about is giving yourself the best chance of getting the very best candidate, then there is this beautiful rule called the 37% rule, which says, interview the first 37% of the candidates, send them all home, and that gives you a baseline. As you interview everyone else, the very first person who you meet who's better than the best person from that initial 37%, hire them immediately on the spot. Um, and what I think is really beautiful about this is it's not merely an intuitively satisfying compromise between looking and leaping. It's the provably optimal strategy. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's, that's fantastic. And I think that's probably apl applicable to a lot of things. That, uh, and it makes total sense that what you need, you need enough data to uh, to go on, right? So you, 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 even though you're going to forego hiring anyone in that first 37%, so it might turn out that, you know, you, you, you could have had this wonderful experience with this particular colleague. Um, you're not going to have that, but, but that's enough to learn that now you're going to be able to make a really good decision. I mean, that, that's brilliant. That's fascinating. Um, okay, so is there, is there a similarly satisfying formula with the uh, explore-exploit dilemma? Yes. Yeah, so in the explore-exploit uh, trade-off, it is typically formulated as this oddly named problem called the multi-armed bandit problem. Uh, and this, this strange nickname comes from the idea of a slot machine as the one-armed bandit because it will uh, take your money. So in the multi-armed bandit problem, uh, you imagine yourself in a casino with all these different slot machines. And it's a weird casino because some of the slot machines pay out more than others. And your job is to make as much money as you can while you're in the casino. And intuitively, that's going to involve some amount of just playing different machines to see which ones appear to be the best and just cranking away on the ones that do seem the best to get those payoffs. And the question is, what, what is that trade-off going to look like? What is, what is the actual algorithm? And this has a very colorful history. It was considered for most of the 20th century to be an unsolvable problem. And in World War II, British mathematicians joked about dropping the multi-armed bandit problem over Germany uh, to waste the brain power of the German <laughs> scientists as kind of intellectual sabotage. Um, but shockingly, it turns out that there are solutions to this. And my favorite are a group of what are called regret minimization algorithms. And this is a very beautiful idea. You can formulate the concept of regret in the multi-armed bandit problem as all of the money that you left on the table, all the money you could have made if only you knew at the beginning everything that you had learned by the end. Um, and this gives you a numerical quantity that you can try to minimize. I think that's 
rather poetic, honestly. Um, and within the family of regret minimization algorithms, there's several, but my personal favorite is what's called upper confidence bound. Upper confidence bound says, play the machine that has the best, best case scenario. Um, and it okay, turns the best, out- Best case scenario. So if you win, you get a million dollars, let's yeah. say. Yeah. It turns out through this long proof that upper confidence bound is over a long enough time horizon, a regret minimizing strategy. And I think this is a very beautiful. It's kind of the rational case for optimism that if you always <laughs> do something with the best, best case scenario over your lifetime, this will be a regret minimizing framework. Um, and yeah, well, we could drill into the math. Well, let's, yeah, let's ex- very beautiful. I want to explore that a little bit because what I'm trying to think of is, okay, so um, I'm guessing part of the regret minimization is if you win at a, a, a smaller payout, um, then you think, gee, what if I would have won at the bigger payout? So that would be a source of regret, right? Yeah. But how, what are the other dynamics of it? Well, in the multi-armed bandit problem, you're really trading off between the payout itself and the information that you gain from trying different things. And if you think about this in a more mathematical form, your uncertainty about a given machine can be represented by these huge error bars. You know, I think this is going to be about a six out of 10, but I don't know. It could be anywhere from a two to a 10. I just don't know. Okay. The more experience you gain, the more you can kind of tighten those error bars down and say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a, a this pays out 60% of the time, you know, plus or minus a couple percent, but I've, I've played it enough to know. So what's beautiful about upper confidence bound is it basically just says, all you need to worry about is the top of your error bars. Uh, because as you gain experience, those error bars will tighten. And so maybe something else will turn out to be better. Um, it gives you just a very organic way to award a kind of bonus, if you will, for the things that you just don't have as much information about. And so is the the impact on regret minimization that when you do succeed, you're going to succeed at a higher level? What you're trying to do in the multi-arm bandit problem is maximize your the total amount of money that you make. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you can think about that as succeeding at a higher level. Okay. And so let me ask this, does the alignment problem, uh, does, does this give us solutions? Is, is, is machine learning, uh, capable of, uh, solving these, these dilemmas? Well, I think, those two books have a very interesting relationship because, you know, one of the things we've talked about a little bit in the context of optimal stopping and the explore exploit trade-off is a lot, a lot of fussy details come down to exactly how you're formulating the problem. Uh, so for example, something that we didn't really get into is that the 37% rule only succeeds 37% of the time. <laughs> so that's the fine print is that you're, you can follow the optimal strategy and you'll still fail 63% of the time. It turns out it's just a really hard problem. Um, and a lot of the time when you do fail, 
you will end up with no candidate at all. Um, and so that might not be a realistic picture of uh, what a hiring manager might actually confront. Um, in the explore-exploit trade-off, the classic way that the math of the multi-armed bandit problem is formulated is with uh, these machines that either, you know, you, you put in one token and you either get a payout or nothing. And so the, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you just lose the, the ante that you've put in. Um, if the machines can, you know, blow up and injure you or something, like if, the, if there's a huge downside risk, then the math totally changes. But I've been implicitly operating in this framework where, you know, the downside is capped at just whatever you pay to play the machine. Um, and all of these fussy little details end up mattering a lot in terms of the, the approach that ends up being the best. And so this is really the alignment problem, right? So, so, so wait, wait, is there, before we get to the alignment problem, is there a formula for when the downside risk is catastrophic? Um, there are ways to modify the problem and you get different decision rules out of it. You know, in the optimal stopping case, if there's a chance that uh, the candidate you want to hire won't take your offer, then you can modify it for the uh, for that scenario. So if the candidate has a 50% chance of rejecting your offer, it turns out the optimal strategy is to start making offers 25% of the way into your pool rather than 37. Um, so there are different ways that you can adjust and get a different optimal strategy as a result. Um, but it turns out to be fairly difficult to formalize exactly what we want, you know? So in the optimal stopping, you know, in the secretary problem, uh, perhaps it's sufficiently bad to end up with no candidate at all that we want to add some penalty for that. Or maybe it's really onerous to be spending all of our time doing this hiring. So we prefer a 90th percentile candidate now to a 99th percentile candidate six months from now. And you can do all these things and you can sort of adjust the numbers. Um, but part of what ends up being really salient is that it is hard for us to formalize exactly what we want in a given situation. And I think this really takes us, this segues us, I think, very organically into the alignment problem. Because as we're talking earlier about machine learning, Machine learning is this somewhat magical uh, set of techniques that can often give you a system that will do whatever you specify. But that's kind of the problem. This is like the sorcerer's apprentice. Um, you know, be careful what you wish for. So you can put in a specific numerical formulation of what you want the system to do, and it will come back and say, okay, I've done exactly what you specified. And very frequently you find that that's not what you actually intended, not what you really wanted. And so this ends up being one of the core topics in AI safety. But I think this is also relevant to anyone in the world of business, right? You create an incentive structure and all of a sudden you realize that you've you know, incentivized A while hoping for B. Uh, um, just to be clear, the alignment problem, the subtitles, machine learning and human values. Um, and is it where machine learning 
uh, intersects with human values or is the alignment problem where machine learning diverges from human values? That was a deliberate choice to make the subtitle kind of broad in terms of suggesting all of the different readings that you're describing. Uh, that was very much deliberate. So um, yeah, all of those different readings are in play. When we, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about how image uh, generation systems kind of automatically reproduce some of these biases that exist in the media. Um, so there are ways in which, you know, human norms, human values end up in these systems, even when we didn't expect it. Um, and there's also this question of how do we more explicitly put human norms and human values into these systems? Um, if we want to make a system that's quote unquote fair, how do we take this intuitive notion of fairness that we have, you know, at an ethical level or uh, stipulations of fairness that exist in, you know, civil rights law, for example, how do we actually turn that into a numerical formulation that the system can optimize? So that ends up being one of the big challenges. And, and so is, what is the alignment problem it, it, that, that, that AI systems won't do what we want, but is it that, uh, we tell it what to do and it doesn't do it or that we don't really know what we want or, 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 or is it the unintended consequence? So the idea of the alignment problem has this wonderful history we can skip most of, but it basically starts in 1960 with, with an MIT researcher named Norbert Wiener. And he uses the analogy of the sorcerer's apprentice or the monkey's paw. If you're, some of your listeners know that story, it's basically a, you know, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And so I would say the alignment problem is systems that follow the letter of the law without following the spirit of the law. Um, any AI researcher will have their own horror stories of the ways that systems did exactly what they were programmed to do, but not what the programmer intended them to do. So uh, here's, here's one example to, to give a little bit of flavor and intuition. Uh, in the late 1990s, there was a group of grad students at Stanford, Astro Teller and David Andre, who now work at Google X doing self-driving cars and various things. But in their grad student days, they were working on a robotic soccer competition. And so they had this set of robots that were somehow meant to learn how to play soccer. And so they needed to supply a kind of numerical reward function for what it meant to play soccer well so that these robots would know what to do. And so you can start with, okay, you get one point for getting the ball through the net, but the system would take forever to figure out how to work backwards from that into actually, you know, playing the game. And so they did what many researchers in that situation would do, which is they add a, a little bit of an incentive. They said, okay, we're going to give you one hundredth of a goal for taking possession of the ball because they thought this would stimulate the system to kind of learn in the right direction. However, this created a massive loophole in their incentive structure. And what their robotic system ended up doing was it would carefully approach the ball, and then as the ball was just within reach, it would vibrate its paddle as quickly as possible, quote unquote, taking possession, you know, 50 times per second. And it would just <laughs> rack up these imaginary incentives, you know, forever. Okay, this is not actually conducive to learning how to play soccer. And this is a perfect example of the alignment problem, right? We and, 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 and incentivized I know you, A, but we wanted B. 
We incentivized A, but we wanted B because we didn't actually teach you how to play soccer. We just taught you how to score uh, an infinite number of one hundredth of a goal over and over and over again by doing this goofy thing that has isn't really how you play soccer. Exactly. Um, and 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 you know the computer uh, probably felt great about itself. Um, but, um, <laughs> but but you make the point that um, that this sort of example. Uh, where a system attempts to maximize numerical rewards um, is is similar to uh, incentive failures in human organizations where where uh, we try to design incentive systems. I'm particularly interested in this uh, right this moment because I'm in the process of helping a client uh, um, uh, redesign their particular incentive program. So, um, what, what do we learn from this? Yeah, so as you say, there are very deep parallels between incentive failures in AI and incentive failures in human systems. And this is both in a corporate setting as well as in a household setting. So one of my favorite examples comes from my collaborator, Tom Griffiths, who we mentioned earlier. Tom is also a dad. And when his daughter was five years old, I think, she swept up some uh, crumbs that were on the floor into a dustpan and emptied them into the trash. And Tom said, wow, you know, great job. You did such a good job sweeping those crumbs, honey. And then he watched in horror as his smiling daughter takes the trash can, dumps it out on the floor, and then proceeds to sweep up all of the trash in the kitchen a second time in order to earn a second helping of his praise. Okay, so this is not what he intended, uh, but it's a perfect example of human incentives gone wrong. He rewarded her for the act of sweeping, not for the cleanliness of the floor. And so this prompted her to dump everything out on the floor and sweep again. Um, and there's a, a principle that has emerged on the computer science side, which is basically you should reward states of the environment, not actions of your agent. Um, which is very counterintuitive, really, if you think about what what you're what you want if you're trying to drive individual performance is you want somebody to take one concrete action after another, right? Um, and and so it's 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 counterintuitive. Yes, I think most of us in that situation would intuitively say you did a great job sweeping. Um, it turns out that the you know the the wisdom from computer science is you praise wow, the floor looks so clean. And you've then closed that loophole. Um, and so you might think about, I mean, I'm making this example up, but you might think in a sales context, you know, rather than rewarding a salesperson for every client that they sign up, maybe you find out that there's a huge churn because they don't care about retention or, you know, something like this. Um, if instead you reward a quote unquote state of the environment, which is how many clients do we have at the end of the month? Then you eliminate the churn problem. So that that's that's a, somewhat of a translation. I mean, this is more your your world than mine, your expertise than mine. But I think some of these ideas. I mean, we're seeing it in psychology and cognitive science. Increasingly, people are reaching over the disciplinary fence into the computer science of reward and alignment. And saying, hey, there are some ideas here that are actually useful for us in thinking about cognitive science, psychology. Um, one of the people I interviewed for the book uh, is a researcher by the name of Falk Leader, who is in 
uh, the Max Planck Institute and works on what he calls gamification. How do you create these incentive structures to get certain behavior? And he's paying very close attention to what's going on in AI and borrowing those ideas for his own research. So it's encouraging to see some of that interdisciplinary dialogue happening. But I also think, you know, this is a matter not just for academic cognitive scientists, but for anyone in a management position. And so I see my role in part as kind of shouting from the uh, the bell tower, you know, hey, there's there's some, there's some real insights in the technical literature that I think haven't made their way out into the broader consciousness yet. And and so the overlap here is in what is that where reinforcement learning comes in? Right. So reinforcement learning is specifically the sub-branch of machine learning that focuses on how do you build a system to take a sequence of actions to maximize a numerical uh, definition of reward, you know, of, of points, basically, um, to get the most points. And so reinforcement learning systems are the things that, you know, you would have read about in the news that have beaten the world champion at the board game Go, which for many years was considered this sort of insurmountable achievement. Uh, they are playing these Atari games at superhuman speed and uh, with superhuman skill. Uh, but reinforcement learning systems are also a big part of what's going on at big tech companies. So, for example, Facebook uses a reinforcement learning system to send you notifications to your phone. They have some uh, points system that they've defined where user interactions generate points and you uninstalling the app or turning off notifications is equivalent to, you know, a game over in an Atari situation, no more points. And they have this reinforcement learning system. In, in, in fact, it's literally the exact same system that DeepMind used to beat these Atari games. Facebook uses this to figure out how to get as many quote-unquote interaction points with users as possible by delivering the, the right notifications at the right moments, but not delivering so many that people get burned out and uninstall the app or turn notifications off. Because then, so, then it's game over. Then it's game over. Game over. Exactly. Um, so, so, so is there, um, is it possible to reward um, a state of the environment and also reward concrete actions in a way that can dovetail? Well, there's, Broadly, this idea in computer science is described as reward transformation. Um, so there's a famous computer science paper called Policy Invariance Under Reward Transformation. And basically what that means is, what are the ways that we can modify the reward structure to make it more easily learnable, but without changing the behavior that we get at the end? Um, and so... There are various tricks of the trade. Um, one thing that you could do, for example, is if you have a goal, let's say uh, you want a, a system to put a golf ball into a hole, you could have the, all the reward at the hole and say, you know, you get 100 points when the ball is in the cup, otherwise zero. Uh, you can transform that into a reward that has to do with proximity. So you get points proportional to how close the ball is to the hole. That might produce uh, a system that's a lot more easily learned. You know, if you imagine a robot playing golf, it doesn't need to randomly end up putting the ball in the hole 
before it learns that it, it should be going towards the hole, right? So if your incentive structure captures the idea of, you know, you're going in the right direction, then that makes something that's easier to learn without changing the optimal behavior that maximizes those points. And is that um, reward modeling? Is that what you mean by reward modeling? So reward modeling is sort of the cutting edge, I would say, of AI alignment. And that is basically going the other direction. So what we've been talking about is, you know, how do you, how do you create a reward function that will incentivize a certain set of behaviors? Reward modeling is very interesting. It goes the other direction. It says, given a bunch of behavior, can we create a reward function that describes that behavior? Basically, you watch a bunch of people doing things, whether it's you watch a bunch of people driving their cars, and then you come up with a reward function to represent the, the activity of driving. If you say, let's, let's imagine that you can think of driving as a video game, and let's imagine that human drivers are really good at playing this video game. What would the score be that they're maximizing? And you can observe their behavior and say, okay, well, it has something to do with going forward. It has something to do with going faster rather than slower. Uh, it has something to do with staying to the right. It has something to do with avoiding contact with other cars, et cetera. And this is called reward modeling. And this is a big part of what's going on right now at the forefront of AI. So these large language models that we talked about earlier that can produce these you know, incredible auto-completions of documents and things like that. Uh, let's say you want them to summarize a document. So you give it a document and then you say, you know, the summary is as follows, colon, and you want it to auto-complete the summary. Um, ideally, you want it to be a good summary, but what makes something a good summary? I mean, how in the heck are we going to create a numerical reward function based on a paragraph of text that rewards how good of a summary it is? Well, this is one of those cases where you can use reward modeling. So you can have a bunch of human people on Amazon Mechanical Turk or something produce a bunch of summaries of the same document. Then you have a, a second group of people also on Mechanical Turk ranking which of those summaries are better than which others. So now you've generated a bunch of human data and you just hand it off to the machine and you say, here's a bunch of human preferences of all of these summaries are better than all of those summaries. You figure out in the back end how to represent that as some kind of score function. And then later, maximize it. And so the system, if, you, if you've set it up correctly, can create this kind of internal representation of what makes a summary good or what makes a summary sort of worthy of points and then can learn to produce summaries that score highly by its own internal metric. And so if you've done it correctly, then those summaries end up getting ranked highly by real people. So what you're real, in other words, what you're really trying to do is take apart successful process, take apart successful outcome, uh, and, and uh, be able to um, uh, be able to chart the components. So yeah. now you know what you want to reward. Yes. And there's a challenge here, which is that the internal representation of the reward that the computer comes up with may be like totally inscrutable gobbledygook to us. And the behavior that it produces 
it works great, but we don't necessarily by default gain any insight into what were the qualities that we wanted to see. Um, there are techniques that people are working on. This is very much an active area to create these reward functions in a way that actually means something to us when we pop the hood and look into it. And I think that's particularly of interest uh, for things like what you're describing is we want to, in a way, I think the, the grail here would be to have the system able to represent that reward in such a way that it actually teaches us something about what we want uh, in a way that we can understand and internalize. I mean, I think that that would be really something. So, so it could it could teach people how to uh, understand what it is that makes those paragraphs good, what right. it is yeah. that makes that driving better than other driving, and then based on that, um, we would we would learn. Oh, those are the things that make it good. Exactly. Um, so, so. Uh, and 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 um, but but I also think this is really powerful in terms of um, incentive systems because uh, what you really want to do is get away from so your example with salespeople just the bottom line. What yeah. you really want to do is teach people. Oh, you know, you ask these questions, you pause this long, you say these things, you follow up in this way, uh, right? It's what is it that that leads to that bottom line. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is a really key point because the way I see it, there is in any organization a tension between the things that are easily quantified and rewarded and measured and the things that aren't. So, you know, you imagine running a newspaper, running the New York Times or something. You know, back in the 19th century, they still cared about their circulation numbers and their subscriber base and how many copies they were selling. And there was some process by which they would trade this off for the intangibles like the prestige, the reputation, the respect, the trust, etc. And in some ways, I think the late 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century really upended the balance of power between the quantifiables and the unquantifiables, where, again, back in the 1800s, the New York Times knew how many copies of the paper they were selling. But now they know at a minute to minute, hour by hour basis, which slight alteration of the framing of the headline gets more clicks that particular hour, et cetera, et cetera. And so the tension between the easily quantified aspects of an organization and those that are a little bit more ineffable uh, has really tilted in favor of the things that can be easily measured. And I, I tend to think of this as a kind of tyranny of metrics that the things that can't be easily captured in, by a metric often end up getting overlooked or under-rewarded or under-incentivized. And, you know, this is still kind of at the forefront of AI, but I think there's a way that AI can end up being useful even to the human side of organizations. So we've seen this in social media companies uh, at Facebook, for example. They're had been a process for determining metrics to measure how good the newsfeed was. You know, how many people engaged with a piece of content, how long users stayed on the site, and whatever metric they chose would sort of blow up in their face. They were incentivizing time on site, but this led to very addictive behavior. 
They were incentivizing engagement, but this led to polarization and outrage and all of these things. Um, increasingly, we are seeing tech companies, I know for a fact that Twitter is working on this, and I imagine the others are as well, using reward modeling to break the tyranny of metrics and say, okay, let's think about what makes a good news feed. And instead of having a, a group of people in a meeting room just deciding some num numerical metric for what makes a news feed good and hoping that that doesn't have any unintended consequences, let's just work with human preferences as the baseline here. We'll show different news feeds to people and say, which one do you like better? Which experience do you prefer? And the system will work out on the back end how the more easily measured aspects contribute to that. Um, and so, so, so that's where human values can uh, be the starting point and then machine learning can make it uh, more systematic and, uh, and, and, and create an effective process. That's exactly right. And I think we're really at the beginning of what I see as a, as a correction to the over-reliance uh, over on metrics and easily measured quantities that has really characterized, I would say, the last century of business and institute, not, not just business, but public sector, et cetera. Um, so, so, we're so really at the beginning of putting human values and just like human preferences on an equal footing with that. And I think that's a big deal. And, and human values and human preferences are what should guide human enterprise. And the computer can help us quantify that, uh, systematize it, and create effective process for reinforcing it. Um, and if you, as a listener, want to accelerate your move away from the tyranny of metrics uh, and, and use reward modeling to help you do that, uh, then what you do is you email Brian at Brian at BrianChristian.org. Brian Christian, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. It's my pleasure, Bruce. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Indispensables. For the next two weeks, we will be on a break for the holiday season. We will be back on January 3rd with Vice President of Logistics at Bosch, George Berg. See you then. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.